uh, verses 13 through 25. Romans 4, 13 through 25 is where we're going to be reading today. This is on page 941 if you have one of the black hardcover Bibles. Romans chapter 4, verses 13 through 25. This is going to kind of end this section that the Apostle Paul has been doing on, uh, on Abraham, using Abraham as an example of faith. I'm going to read and, and would love for you to follow along and remember as we read, we're reading God's word. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs. Faith is, for if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, in hope He believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why faith was counted to him. As righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised Jesus, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. That's God's word. You may be seated. You know, in 1905, uh, some British. Uh, miners discovered the world's biggest natural uh, gem-quality diamond. It was uh, found in Sir Thomas Cullion's mine, and, and it was over 3,000 carats uh, in, in weight, which that's not, you know, you go, I don't, I don't know what that means. That's about 1.3 pounds, and that's the biggest ever gem-quality diamond that has ever been found. We have a picture of it here, uh, kind of an old picture. And you see it's just there's not really a, a lot to it. It just almost looks like a piece of glass. It would fit in the palm of your hand if you had it. And, 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 and yet this gemstone, which clearly they saw as valuable, was then divided up into nine different diamonds, into nine different very important, very big diamonds. One of them was the biggest cut diamond Uh, until just a few years ago. And this goes in the royal scepter of the Queen of England. So we've got a a picture of that. So so that's one of nine diamonds that that came from that that one. Now, that's a pretty nice little rock. Ladies, I don't think you have one of those on your your hand, unfortunately. If he he liked it, he'd put that on it. Um, But he he can't because that's on the queen's scepter, right? And then the next biggest one, the Cullion II, uh, goes on the imperial crown. And perhaps you've seen this crown. It's a little hard to see in that picture, but kind of right at the front of that is the the next diamond that comes from that. So you see out out of this large, uncut, valuable thing, but not really very pretty, all these facets get cut into it. 
And all of a sudden, it's gorgeous. You see the queen here from some years back with her crown and her scepter. I was pulling this up on my computer, and my daughters were like, who's that? Right? It was like their dream come true, a real-life queen, right? Why, why do I mention that? You have this diamond. Everyone knew it was valuable, right? They had to do real serious security even just to get it back to England from the South African mine where it was found. And they knew it was important, but it wasn't until they cut it that it actually began to be beautiful. And it was so big and so strong that when they cut it the first time, it broke the knife. And then when it's cut, when all the facets are applied to this diamond, its brilliance and its beauty comes out. Well, here's the thing. We've discovered in this book that we're studying a, a gemstone, faith. And, and if you've been around church for any period of time, maybe you grew up in church and you're coming back, or maybe you've been here for a while, and you know that faith is important. And often you'll be exhorted to believe in Jesus and just trust Jesus, and Jesus is better. And, and you know kind of conceptually that that's valuable, but you still go, I don't know what to do with that. Uh, okay, just trust Jesus. I know that's important, but How? And see, what's happened for you is, is you've got this, this gemstone, but it's never been cut for you. You've never seen all the facets that, that illuminate its brilliance. And so you're kind of stuck in this place of, oh, I know I should just believe, and I know I should just trust, and I know I should just think that Jesus is better, but I don't really know how to do that. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look in this passage in Romans 4 at five different facets of faith. Faith is like this precious gemstone. And Paul in this passage, it's a longer passage, one of the longest passages we'll actually study in our whole series on Romans. Uh, But it's all one thought, and it's all him helping us sort of cut away and, and see the brilliance, see the beauty, see the facets of our faith. And so my hope is that today as we look at these five facets of faith, that at least one of these, you'll go, oh, I see I have an idea now. It's not going to be just, I'm just going to try to believe better. But you're going to go, I think I have a better sense of what it is to really trust and follow Jesus. Five facets of faith. Here's the first one. Is that faith ensures that the promise rests on grace. Faith ensures that the promise rests on grace. This kind of reviews what what we've been talking about through this book. Paul started out the book saying, we're evil, we're sinful, we we do things that that we don't even want to do, and we do things that God tells us we shouldn't do. And we have this problem, we're broken in our relationship with him, and we've got to be made right with God. How are we going to be made right with God? Are we going to be made right with God by our effort? Well, if we did, he said earlier in this book, then we'd get the credit. We would get to boast. We'd be like a worker who, who worked and earned its way, his wages. But Paul's saying, no, faith is different. Faith makes sure that the promise rests on grace. Look at verses 13 and following. For the promise to Abraham, remember here, the Apostle Paul has been making this statement that, that, that we can be made right with God just by trusting him and that that's how it was for Abraham. Abraham received a promise and he believed God. It was counted to him as righteousness. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. 
Right? We saw when we looked back at Abraham's story, it wasn't that Abraham had perfectly obeyed everything. It wasn't that God had said, hey, Abraham, if you do this, then I'll make you the father of many nations. But no, it was just a promise. It was just an offer by sheer grace. It didn't rest on the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Verse 14, for if, it's a, for if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. So if you think that, well, I can earn it. I can do this. I can do the right things. I can impress God with my behavior. If you think that, then what you're saying is faith doesn't matter. Faith's unimportant. And yet Paul has said that the way we're declared righteous is by faith. The law brings wrath, but where there's no law, there's no transgression. And then verse 16 explains this. That is why it depends on faith. What's the big deal about faith? That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also the one who shares the faith of Abraham. God is concerned that his promise would rest on grace. God's a jealous God. He's zealous for his glory, and he's the giver and he doesn't want us to, to then say, well, I, I contributed to it. I had something to do with it. He wants the promise to rest on grace. If you think back into the book of Genesis, we touched on this briefly a number of weeks ago. In the book of Genesis, uh, Abraham, it, we see, we kind of meet him in, in chapter 12. And in chapter 11, you have the Tower of Babel. And the Tower of Babel in the, in the book of Genesis was not about people trying to you know, build a stairway to heaven so that they actually thought they could get up there. It was about them doing some work that would make a great name for themselves. They said, we'll make a great name for us. And, and so what does God do? Well, God then scatters them into nations, scatters their languages. Right? The reason that, there, that, that there's languages all over the world in different tribes and different people groups and different ethnicities and different skin colors it's because of the Tower of Babel. And then God says, I'm going to pick one person, and through him, I'm going to make him into a nation. And through that nation, I'm then going to bless all these other nations that I've just created. But, but I want him to know something for sure, that I will make his name great, God says. God says in chapter 12, Abraham, go into your, away from your family and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great. Because there's one person who makes our name great. It's God. Why? So that the promise would rest on grace. I love this quote by John Stott. He says, law language, you shall, demands our obedience. But promise language, I will, demands our faith. What God said to Abraham was not, obey this law and I will bless you, but I will bless you. Believe my promise. Remember a number of years ago, the, the first pastor that I got to work under as an intern was a guy named Jim Harper. Uh, if you've ever met Harper Brazelton, uh, she's named after Jim, that one of Matthew and Christie's favorite pastors growing up. And Jim, as I was kind of cutting my teeth in ministry, one of the things he taught me is he said, listen, there's two kinds of sermons you can give. There's do this, don't do that sermons. And there's isn't God wonderful sermons. And, and he said, listen, be careful, because you can get a lot of traction out of the do this, don't do that sermons. If you do this, everyone will leave at the end and they'll say, thank you so much. I feel so convicted. I feel so guilty. Thank you. Right? Like, what, are, what is wrong with us as, you know, 
Christian people. Like, we just love to flog ourselves. He said, you can get a lot of traction there. And he said, I, I made mistakes at times in my ministry. You know, I'd get angry, and I'd get frustrated, and I'd want to see something happen, and I'd, I'd go with a do this, don't do that sermon. And I was always reminded to go back to a isn't God wonderful sermon. Why? Because then the promise rests on grace. The God gets the credit. God gets the glory. Faith ensures that the promise rests on grace. If we look down to verse 17, we see this, that faith depends on the object, not the quality. Faith depends, here's the second facet we want to look at, faith depends on the object, not the quality. Look at verse 17. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Where was Abraham's faith? Was, it was in God. It was in, as it says here, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Nowhere in all of this account does it talk about the quality, the purity of, of, of Abraham's faith. It's all about the object of his faith. Now get this. This is really important. You can believe sincerely, and yet if your faith is in the wrong thing, it won't work. So um, we have an attic in our house, like many of you do, and you access it through the garage. And, uh, you know, we keep Christmas stuff up there and a lot of other things, like I'm sure many of you do. And, um, and so whenever we need that, I send my wife up there to get it. And I'm not kidding. Um, and, uh, you know, I kind of help hoist her up there with the ladder, and it's a whole production. And, um, but she gets up there, and as you know this, I mean, in any attic, you know, any crawl space, there's, there's beams, and then there's, like, floor. But what's under the floor? Nothing, basically, right? I mean, you step on that, you are going through the deal. And so she's always very careful when she's up there to walk on the beams. Now, it doesn't matter at that point if she thinks the beams won't hold her. If she's walking on the beams, she'll be okay, right? If she's going, oh, I'm just not sure. I just don't know if the beams are going to hold me. As long as she's still on the beam, it's strong enough to hold her, right? But if she goes, you know what? I sincerely believe that this floor part is going to hold me. It doesn't matter how sincerely she believes that. She steps on it. She's, you know, I'm going to try to catch her through the ceiling, right? So, so, so faith is not about the quality. It's about the object, right? And, and, and we're going to even discuss here a little bit. There were, there were times when, when Abraham's faith was rattled a little bit, and he had questions, and and he gets a lot of praise here, we'll see in this passage, for, for where he finished. But, but along the way, there, there are moments when our faith is not all that strong. And some of you get very locked up about, do I have enough faith? Is my faith strong enough? Is it pure enough? That's not the question. The question is, what is your faith in? Is your faith in the God who, as it says in verse 17, gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Now, this word dead is important because in verse 19, we see that Abraham believed that his body was as good as dead. 
Right? Do you see that, verse 19? He didn't weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. Sorry to any of you uh, who are nearing 100. You're as good as dead, according to the Bible. Um, but please, don't go dying on us. We're glad you're here. But do you get this? He's going, I, I, my faith is, I, I, I guess, I guess I'll, what, what, what was it? He believed God who can raise the dead. He was a big godder. There's a story I read about a uh, seminary professor from Princeton, and he was loved by all of his students. And from time to time, he would drop into the chapel service uh, whenever one of his old students would come to preach at their seminary. And, and he would drop in, and he would listen to the sermon. And he, he, he told people, I only listen to you preach one time. And he listened to one particular guy preach, and and uh, someone came up to him afterwards and said, hey, how did, how did your old student do? And he said, he's going to be fine. He's a big godder. They said, big godder? What, what, what is that? And he said, well, listen, when you hear people preach, there's little godders and there's big godders. The little godders really talk a lot about you and a lot about your problems. And, and so the people with little gods have big problems. Then there's other people, they preach, and, and you hear about a big god. They're big godders. And the big godders have little problems. Their problems are real, but in perspective to what God can do, they're small. He's a big godder. He'll be fine. Are you a big godder? Go, oh, I don't... I don't know if I have enough faith. I don't know if my faith is strong enough. I don't know if my faith is big enough. That's not the question. How big are you, right? Big you is little God. The question is, are you a big Godder? Do you believe in a God who can raise the dead, who can do the impossible? Abraham did. That's the next thing we see. The next facet of faith that's described here is that faith imagines the impossible. Faith imagines the impossible, verse 18. What a great phrase verse 18 starts with. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he, was, when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Get that? In hope, he believed against hope, right? There was no human hope that Abraham could have that he would bear a son. He was about 100 years old. His wife was about 100 years old, and she was barren. And even though his name meant father of many, he was a father of none. And the world around him would have said, no way. It can't happen. There's no way you could have a son. There's no way you could become a father of nations. Even Abraham, at times when he heard that promise, laughed. <laughs> I don't know. But as God kept promising, Abraham started believing, started hoping, started imagining that against all hope, he had a real hope. God could do this. He began to imagine the impossible. Now get this, this doesn't mean that he, that he ignored the reality of his circumstance. Look at verse 19. 
He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Get this. Sometimes when people talk about faith, they're asking you to ignore the circumstance. Well, if you just had faith and you were just a big godder, then you wouldn't... Get get this. He considered the circumstance. He thought about it. It means it's an intentional way of contemplating. Right? It wasn't like he just wished it away. It wasn't like he just spoke words and that, you know, the power of positive thinking. No, he thought about it. He thought, God, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm about 100 years old. I, I'm as good as dead when it comes to reproducing offspring. You've got to be kidding me, God. He considered that. And still, he believed. I was talking with a friend of mine this week, who, um, or, or last week, actually, and it, that last week was his son's first day of school. And so many of you as parents, uh, I've seen a lot more refreshed moms lately. I don't know what it is, something about that. Um, but you've had this experience, you know, you send your kids off to school, and, and especially if, it, if anything is new about it, it can be a very scary experience. And so um, this friend of mine has a, has a firstborn son who's kind of timid and um, just kind of naturally that way. And, and he's going to the same school he went to last year, but he's going to a different part of the building, and it's way in the back. And it's, uh, you know, he'd have to kind of go through all the big kids to get there. And he just, the whole way to school is telling his dad, Dad, I don't know. Dad, I'm so scared. Dad, I don't think I can make it. Dad, I don't know. And my friend talked to him and said, Buddy, listen, faith is not ignoring the circumstance. Faith is acknowledging the circumstance. And then courage is acting in faith, believing that God is bigger than the circumstance. Buddy, you should be afraid. It's a long way back there. And these kids are big. And if one of them got a hold of you, they could do some real damage. <laughs> but God's bigger. And so I'm not going to tell you, buddy, not to be scared. But I'm going to tell you to act courageously. Because God's bigger. That's what faith is. It begins to imagine the impossible. It doesn't ignore the circumstance, but it says, God's bigger than that. Here's the fourth facet of faith, is that faith grows. Faith grows. This is the part of the passage to me that um, I honestly had the most trouble with this week. I, this, there are some weeks where sermon preparation comes easy, and it's a passage you're really familiar with, and, it's, and, and this wasn't one of those. <laughs> um, I, I wrestled and struggled a lot um, with the next couple verses that we're going to look at. Look at them for just a moment. Look at verse 20. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he'd promised. This is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Did you get that? If you're reading this carefully, and if you know the story of Abraham, a question came up for you. Now, if you're not familiar with the story and you're going, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about, we'll give you a pass on it. But if you know the story of Abraham, you read what Paul writes in, in verses 20 and 21, and you go, really? No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God? Really? Abraham never wavered? Man, I feel like I read about him wavering. Verse 21, fully convinced that God was able to do what he'd promised? Fully convinced? You go, wait a minute. 
I, I've read this story, and I, I feel like the way I remember it is Abraham kind of arguing with God about, God, are you sure you're going to do this for me? And then I remember Abraham's wife suggesting, why don't you sleep with one of my servants so that you can have a son that way? And I recall that Abraham did that. And I recall that God showed up again in Genesis 17 and told him again, and he said, <laughs> no way, God. And then I read Paul say, he didn't weaken in faith. No distrust made him waver. He was fully convinced. What do we do with that? Some of you are going, I knew it. See, the Bible is full of errors. The Bible is full of contradictions. What do I do with it? Well, that was my question as I studied this all week. And conveniently, a lot of the commentators just don't really comment on it. It's like, oh, we'd rather not deal with this. And, and, and so, I mean, because the whole time I'm going, Paul, have you read Genesis? And then I came across a verse, and when I came across it, it was like Paul said back to me, yeah, have you? See, the story doesn't, doesn't end there. See, after all of this stuff where Abraham, you know, tries this thing with Hagar and, and, and then laughs and just does it, right? Then God says, all right, buddy, I want you to get circumcised today. We talked about this last week. I thought this was a lot funnier than you all thought it was. But the idea of a 99-year-old having to get circumcised, I don't know what obedience is if not that, right? And it says he did it that day. And then you get to chapter 22, and in chapter 22, by then he's had this promised son, and Isaac is probably a teenager. And God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take him up on this mountain and sacrifice him. He says, okay. And they load up, and he goes up the hill, and he's got a knife, and he's got rope to tie him up. And at some point, Isaac says, hey, hey Dad, um, I know we're doing this sacrifice thing, we forgot something important. Where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, God will provide. And we don't know exactly what Abraham meant there. Did he mean what happened, which was right as he was about to throw the knife down on his son and kill him, God says, stop! Now I know that you love me because you didn't withhold your son, your only son whom you love from me. And then God provides a ram in the thicket, and they sacrifice that. Is that what Abraham thought would happen? Or is it that Abraham thought that the God who has the power to raise the dead might raise his son even if he killed him? Because God had promise. See, faith grows. Abraham has these challenges, and Abraham has these struggles, just like you and I do, but the end of the story is faith grows. And, and so when I'm going, Paul, haven't you read Genesis? And he's saying back to me, yeah, have you? Because then Genesis 26 says this. This is God talking to his people, saying, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, and I will give to your offspring all these lands, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. When God saw it all said and done, you know what God saw? Abraham was my man. Abraham obeyed me. You go, whoa, whoa, wait, but not all the time? No, no, not all the time. But in the end, his faith grew. Do you see that in verse 20? 
No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Yes, he had moments where he fell. Yes, he had moments when he stumbled, but he kept getting up, and he kept obeying again in faith and trusting God in faith. And he grew, and he grew, and he grew. Listen, the, the, the path of spiritual growth is filled with ups and downs, and in the long run, it's up and to the right. Every person you admire is deeply flawed. And yet, in this instance, because of faith, not the purity of his faith, but the object of it, God says, Abraham's my man. It reminds me of King David, who... Paul quoted earlier in this passage. King David, how is he described in Scripture? In Chronicles, which gives God's view of the kings, how was he described there? A man after God's own heart. But he had adultery and murder and yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a man after God's own heart. See, there are these deeper realities that, that are there and that grow, even though we stumble and we struggle thought about the place in Hebrews. In Hebrews 12, it says that for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. For the joy that was set before him. And, and yet you, if you look at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, you go, joy? This doesn't look like joy. He's, he's, he's in anguish to the point where he's sweating drops of blood. How does that look like joy? No, that, that moment, if you look at the moment, doesn't look like joy. If you look at any one given moment, David doesn't look like a man after God's own heart. If you look at Abraham in one given moment, you go, I don't know if he had faith. But when you look at the totality of it, because faith grows slowly over time, you go, wow, man of faith. So I have this question as I wrestled through this. I wondered, could this mean that we might have a higher standard of faith than God. Because we're focused on the quality of our faith. And God's just saying, is your faith in the right thing? Because if your faith's in the right thing, if it's by grace, I'll make it grow. Just wonder. But faith grows. Here's the last facet of faith. Verse 23. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Here's the fifth facet of faith, is that faith banks on facts about Jesus for us. Right, So Paul has been talking at the end of chapter 3 about faith, that, that God had by grace as a gift, given us Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is our redemption, that he is the one who absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf, that through his perfect, obedient life, and then his death on the cross, and then his resurrection, that we are now made right with God. And then he said, let me show you an example. It's always been like this. And he took us on this Abraham detour. But now he's bringing it back to us. And for the rest of this book, it's going to be very focused on on the people he wrote this to, this Roman church, and by extension, us. What does faith look like for us? Because God hasn't come to you and said, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. Uh, God hasn't come to you and said, I'm going to give you a son named Isaac. Right? God hasn't done that. What, so how does this faith thing apply to us? Well, for us, 
Faith banks on facts about Jesus. I love that at the end of verse 23. These words weren't written for his sake alone, verse 24, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. What was the key word in those last two verses? It gets repeated. Raised. Raised. There are some facts about Jesus that are really important. Remember I told you that that what Paul is saying here is it's not the quality of your faith, it's the object of it, right? Well, what's the object of our faith? The object of our faith is Jesus who is raised from the dead. This is the message of Christianity. This was the starting point for the early church. You know that the early church, until this book was written, didn't have a New Testament, right? And even once the Romans got this, we're not sure how fast this circulated. It wasn't for a couple hundred years that the Bible was actually put together, Old and New Testaments, the way we have it. So what was the thing, what was the thing that people were to believe in? It was facts. Facts about a risen Savior. Paul is writing this book within the lifetime of eyewitnesses. Many of the people in Rome, in fact, probably how the church in Rome was started was by people who were in Jerusalem on Pentecost and then went back to Rome and began this new thing. And what did they hear on Pentecost? They heard the Apostle Peter preach a message about facts that everyone there knew, which was that Jesus is raised from the dead. Listen, there's no other explanation for Christianity than that. There's no explanation for why someone like Paul, who earlier was Saul, whose whole mission was to destroy Christianity, why is he now traveling the world, wanting to get to Rome, wanting to eventually get to Spain? Why does he do that? Because he had an encounter with a risen Savior. It's a fact. Why do we have hope that the circumstances we're in aren't the end? Why? Because we have a risen Savior. God raised him from the dead. Jesus, our Lord, he was delivered up for our trespasses. This means that the sins we've committed, God will not hold us against, it won't hold against us because he counted those trespasses on him. Jesus died in our place. And then he was raised for our justification so that we could be declared righteous before God. That's the facts of our faith. You go, well, I don't know. I don't know about all these other, there's so much about Christianity I just don't understand. Maybe you feel like that. Especially if you're here and you're newer, you're kind of going, man, there's a lot of this. Abraham and did you really, did you talk about circumcision? That, did I hear that a minute ago? And you may go, you know what, I don't know what I think about the Bible and I don't know what I think about science and I don't know what I think about how long it took to make the earth and I don't know what I think about all these things. Listen, what Paul's saying here is it doesn't really matter what you think about those things. What matters is what you think about Jesus and him being raised from the dead. This is a historic fact. See, when we talk about faith, we often talk about it like it's wishful thinking. Or people will say, well, it's just blind faith. No. No, the Christian faith is based on 
facts. It ensures that the promise rests on grace. It's about the object, not the quality of our faith. It grows over time. And it's based on fact. So I don't know where you're at today. I don't know if you've had a good week or a bad week. I don't know if your circumstances are crumbling around you. And, and, and I don't, I'm not calling you on the basis of this passage today to you know, overcome it and live victoriously over the, maybe, whatever. What I'm calling you to is a, a deeper faith in facts about Jesus that grow over time, that give you hope that these circumstances aren't the end because you have a big God. Let's pray together. God, thank you that you are big and that you can be trusted. God, thank you that you love us more than we can imagine or fathom. Thank you that you proved that by sending your son Jesus and by raising him from the dead. God, we come and our our faith is not always as strong as we'd like it to be, but God, our, my hope is that our faith would be in the right thing, that it wouldn't be in ourselves, but that it would be in you. And so God, however weak our faith is, could we trust in you? Could we turn our attention to you? And would we see you work the possible into things that we think are impossible? We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.